Greetings everyone and welcome to a new episode of ER on the Go. This is Mustafa Al-Habubi, an EM physician. This week we have a great case for you. As usual, before we go into the case, I would like to remind our dear listeners that the cases discussed in this podcast are for educational purposes only. Any medical decision should be used with the consultation of a medical specialist. Some details of the cases discussed in this, bo- in this podcast have been changed to protect the patient's identity. This case is from my junior years of residency. I was covering a general surgery service in a community hospital. It was the weekend and I was doing the rounds along with a medical student the senior of the service and our staff surgeon. One of our patients, a lady in her 70s, developed small bowel obstruction few days after laparoscopic appendectomy. She became delirious post-op, so she kept removing her nasogastric tube with recurrent installment. On the day of the rounds, she was short of breath She was using accessory muscles, except for the respiratory distress and tachypnea. The vitals were normal. History was limited due to the delirium and was non-contributory by the accompanying family. She did not have a significant past medical history. Auscultation did not reveal crackles or wheezing. There were no signs of volume overload. Labs, AKG, chest x-ray were not remarkable. We did not know or we were not sure what was wrong with her, so we consulted ICU to help us to manage her. The theory at that time was possible pulmonary edema or pneumonia, so the patient was started on diuretics and an antibiotic. PE was not, not discussed at that time as a potential differential. ICU did not admit the patient, but they were going to observe and follow up on her. As we were assessing the patient, the medical student said, doesn't this patient have strider? We did not pay much much attention to her comment at that time. Our staff and the medical student left after rounds. Then me and my senior were discussing the case. It is true ICU were going to follow up on the patient, but the patient did not improve. She was still using accessory muscles, and despite the vitals being normal at that time except the tachypnea, we knew that this patient is going to fatigue eventually and will need uh, intubation, so we had to do something. We remembered the comment made by the student. Indeed, the patient has a strider, or had a strider. Could we have missed something? We discussed this with our staff and the ICU and agreed we probably should consult ENT. As soon as we called ENT in this hospital, by the way, the first call was a staff consultant. The staff consultant offered immediately coming to see the patient and then asked ICU to take the patient for intubation. I was quite junior at that time and I was surprised that the the staff asked for intubation and even with a glidoscope, 
which was not a thing at that time. It was way before COVID came. He also asked for surgical airway set to be open on the side just in case. And then, to my surprise, when we used the glidoscope, the patient had laryngeal edema. We successfully intubated the patient by the glidoscope, started steroids, the patient was intubated for a few days and then extubated successfully and she did well afterwards. The theory at that time was the patient had laryngeal edema because of irritation from repeated NG insertion. This case, though it's uncommon and have uncommon presentation, taught me important lessons. The, fir the first is to, to take a step backward and think about the data that we have. In medicine, especially in eMERGE, where we have to make decisions on the go, we used pattern recognition commonly. If a data point does not fit the overall picture, our brains tend to treat them as extra information and may ignore them. I learned during residency from my mentors that it is a good practice to take a step back and think, am I missing anything? How would this data point, which was the strider in this case, fit into the clinical picture? We would tend to think about common causes of respiratory distress, and rightfully, in this patient, we should have done that, but then we should have paid attention to the strider, which was the key to solve this case. The second was to ask all team members if they have any thoughts and consider them. At the beginning of the assessment of the case, the input from the medical student was not taken into consideration, although it was the key to solve the case. Which takes me to my third point, which is expertise and exposure. The team that was assessing the patient was a general surgery team who was trained to approach certain types of clinical problems, for which this clinical challenge was not or was out of their usual exposure to the extent that the strider was not accounted for. On the other hand, the medical student is still fresh on all of these clinical entities. I believe that you know what you do every day. Finally, I would like to use this case to review some practical pearls on management small bowel obstruction. Dear listeners, I assume you know the basics of management of small bowel obstruction, therefore this is not an exhaustive review, I will just go through into deeper details. I will use the guidelines by Michigan for, small, for management of small bowel obstruction. I will attach a link to uh, the, or the link for this guidelines uh, to the episode description. In mechanical small wall obstruction, and by the way, we have to differentiate between mechanical and ileus. Mechanical bowel obstruction, as we know, happens because there is a cause to cause a mechanical obstruction of the bowel. Most commonly, as we know, is uh, adhesions, and then we have hernias and malignancies and IBD and so forth. With the mechanical obstruction, the mechanical obstruction preve prevents normal transit of luminal contents, causing distension of the small bowel proximal to the transition point, mainly by swallowing air and accumulation of intestinal fluid. As this process progresses, intestinal function is lost, and if distension is severe, 
The bowel may be compromised by decreased intestinal perfusion leading to ischemia and maybe necrosis and perforation. When the content of small bowel stays at the point proximal to obstruction for a long time, bacteria, which is part of the content of small bowel, will work on them, causing them to look like feces, hence the feculent vomiting. The presence of fluid inside the bowel will lead to what we call third spacing, meaning that some volume will be will be inside the bowel and will be non-functional in the patient. Hence, these patients could be hypovolemic because of vomiting and the third spacing. We all know the symptoms of small bowel obstructions, so few pearls there. The passage of stool does not rule out small bowel obstruction because the patient may be passing some stool that are distant to the point of obstruction. On the other hand, not passing gas denotes complete bowel obstruction. And by the way, the management of complete and partial bowel obstruction is essentially the same if the patient does not have signs of bowel compromise. It just tells us if there is complete obstruction that it might be higher chance of needing uh, operative intervention. But by the end of the day, most cases, if there is no uh, bowel compromise and the cause is adhesions, not hernias, for example, is an unoperative management. This drives me to, the, to discuss bowel compromise. We all know the signs which include fever, peritonitis, high lactate, leukocytosis, or signs of ischemia on CT. But keep in mind, when you palpate the patients with distended abdomen, they may have rebound tenderness, making us think that they may have peritonitis. I have seen this happening with distended abdomens. If the patient is stable, you can put an NG to decompress the abdomen, then examine the patient again. I find in many of these cases, rebound tenderness disappears. Do not forget to look for scars or inguinal hernias. In ER, we tend to be fast to examine the abdomen, and sometimes we do not include the growing area in our exam. Finding a, a, a hernia as a cause of obstruction might be the, the key to solve the case if the patient doesn't have bowel compromise by reducing the hernia. For first time small bowel obstruction, CT scan is needed as we need to establish the etiology and check for bowel compromise. You may find internal hernia or closed bowel obstruction for which you will need surgery and uh, usually you don't wait for non-operative management. X-ray can be used in cases of recurrent small bowel obstruction, but POCUS have shown superior sensitivity and specificity to X-rays as we, we have discussed in a previous episode. Keep in mind that CT is not sensitive enough to diagnose small bowel obstruction in cases of patients that underwent gastric bypass surgery for metabolic surgery. Clinical suspicion should be high in these cases and you should consult the surgeon. In other words, CT can be normal and still the patient might have small bowel obstruction. As for non-operative management, it is composed of MPO, nasogastric tube. Nasogastric tube is useful to prevent aspiration if the patient vomits. It may be not necessary if the stomach is not distended, and you can see this on the scan, 
or if the patient has small gastric reservoirs, such in the cases of gastric bypass surgeries. Patients will need IV fluid as usually. They will have, they will, as usually, they will be dehydrated from vomiting and third spacing. We need to add losses from NG in our fluid calculation. Usually, the way it's done is 1 to 1 ml, so we lose 1 ml from NG, we add another ml to the patient, or 1 to 2, uh, meaning that for each 2 ml we lose, we add 1 ml to the patient. We can use urine output as a guide for the hydration status of the patient. We need to add potassium to our IV fluids as patients lose them through vomiting and NG tube. Finally, I would like to mention that one cause that may be overlooked for um, uh, difficulty with breathing in this patient population. Recently, we had a case in our eMERGE for a patient that had uh, small bowel obstruction, but at the same time, at the time of assessment, the patient had difficulty with breathing with using of accessory muscles, but at this time, he was deciding to 88%. The patient was around 60s, did not have significant past medical history, auscultation was normal. At that time, POCUS helped us to guide the management of the patient. The patient was tachycardic and at the same time was using accessory muscles. So was the patient ischemic? Was the patient having pulmonary edema? Should we give him a fluid or not? So when we used POCUS, we found, uh, before that we did auscultation, as I mentioned, the, the lungs were clear. So with POCUS, we found hyperdynamic heart good contractility, no B-lines or pleural fusion, and IVC was collapsed. Prior to that, the patient had CT scan, which ruled out PE because the patient also had a history of malignancy, so we had to rule this out. So using POCUS, we were able to, to kind of accurately diagnose the patient and know that it is safe to give him IV fluids, which we did. And the overlooked cause I wanted to discuss in this case for difficulty with breathing was the distended abdomen pushing the diaphragm up, which most likely was the case at uh, the cause in this patient. As we put the NG, we decompress the stomach and the patient respiratory status improves significantly. That's pretty much it for the points I wanted to discuss uh, regarding small bowel obstruction and the case. Thank you for listening and um, I hope to see you in the next episode. Have a good day.